When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Believe is brought to you by Cryptid Coffee Co. Use promo code BELIEVE on checkout for 10% off their Angry Yowie Coffee Blend. Head over to cryptid.com.au to check them out. It was just the most massive thing I've ever seen. I, to tell you the honest truth, I thought, well, we're the only ones left on this planet. Something's happened. We've missed something here. The fear that went in me when I seen it was just, un- like, the feeling. I'd say it was fear, but I've never felt that feeling before in my entire life. It's a weird feeling. Like, you can't explain it when you don't know. You feel like you're being followed, but you don't know what it is. We had two to our right, another one in front of us, another one to the left, and another one just across the road, shaking the daylight down the tree. All we get is a big red eye. I remember waking up and looking at the end of the bed, and there was a figure there, almost insect-like, and then I blacked out. Welcome to the show, everyone. My name is Cade Moyer, and you are listening to the Believe Paranormal and UFO Podcast. If you have had an encounter and would like to share it, please get in touch with me. My email address is believepod at gmail.com. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to leave us a rating or review wherever you listen and head on over to our website, believepod.com, and consider becoming a member to get bonus episodes and video content. Tonight, I'm joined by George Simpson, and he's the author of the book, Nothing on Radar, The Valentich Mystery. George, welcome to the show, mate. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Um, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Mate, it's a real pleasure to have you on because, um, you know, you and I have been chatting on uh, on Facebook for a little bit there, and uh, your book is truly fascinating. It's, um, it's really one of Australia's greatest UFO mysteries and you know Australia really doesn't have a lot of great UFO mysteries. There's uh, there's a handful out there that are kind of famous, but this one is one of the the biggest head scratchers when it comes to what actually happened uh, on that very mysterious day. So I guess my my first question for you, kind of off the bat, is what got you into this mystery from the start? Okay, well it was just by being in the right place at the right time, I guess. Um, I was uh, on the day that this happened the day that Fred uh, took off of Moorabbin um, I was uh, 20 years old uh, I was living with my parents at that stage and uh, I was just waiting for a friend who was coming to visit at about 6 o'clock uh, she hadn't arrived yet so I went out uh, to the front yard to see if there's anybody coming down the street and um, I saw this plane fly past and uh, we which is nothing unusual for us. We saw lots of planes flying around because we weren't that far, really. Like, by air, we were four or five minutes from Moorabbin Airport. So, you know, if you took off at Moorabbin and then turned, 
and flew for a minute or two, you'd go right over where we lived. So we saw a lot of air traffic, you know, all the time. Well, I saw this plane going past, and um, the, it was the time of day when um, all well, there were a lot of tall trees in that area in Balmoris. There's a lot of, um, yeah, tall, shady trees. So the street was starting to get a little bit on the dark side, but the sky was still blue, and the must have been in the sunshine uh, in, in the evening. It was only about 6 p.m., and um, it was in October. So, you know, it's nowhere near um, sunset yet. But I watched the plane go past. It's just a blue and white Cessna flying past. I could tell it was blue and white. And um, a thought popped into my mind. I, I could say, look, I heard a voice. I don't know that I heard a voice, but uh, it was like a, a thought popped into my mind, which was, don't your eyes off that plane. Keep your eye on that plane. And I thought, well, that's seen before. But I watched the plane. It was going in a straight line. It was nothing unusual, but it was heading towards the setting sun, um, which wasn't setting yet, but um, it was only just after 6 o'clock. The sunset would have been in just before 7 p.m. that evening. Um, anyway, I didn't think much more about it. The next day, there were radio... Uh, radio news reports on the radio saying that an aircraft has gone missing um, and uh, they believe this plane has run out of fuel and crashed into Bass Strait and so there was a search going on an air, air sea rescue search going on um, and that was what the news report said all day long um, but by the end of the day um, this is the next day, I think, I think it was a Saturday when I saw the plane go over the next day was a Sunday, and by the end of the Sunday, the news reports had changed from, we think this plane has run out of fuel and gone down into the sea, to this pilot reported that something was chasing him. There was an object he could not identify, which was flying around him and annoying him, um, and then he disappeared. He and his plane disappeared. Uh, that's For me, that was a, 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 an amazing kind of report to hear because I've never heard of anything like that before you know I, you occasionally get UFO reports on the radio but very rarely do you ever hear of one where an air, a pilot who's up there with this thing flying around sees it can't identify it and then vanishes that's quite unique it really is unique and there's so many different types of evidence that kind of go along with this encounter that it it really does give a lot of credence to the fact that, you know, there was possibly something otherworldly that interacted with Frederick that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's it's just odd that I got that strange feeling that I should keep my eye on the plane. I mean, if you thought about it sit there logically, um, if I was to keep my eye on the plane, I would have had to jump in my car and then go speeding along Beach Road <laughs> uh, through all the traffic to keep my eye on the plane, I would have had to follow it all the way around and drive. I would have had to drive down past Geelong and get on the Great Ocean Road. There's no way I could have kept my eye on the plane. Uh, the Royal Melbourne Golf Course was at the end of our street. I mean, they had very tall trees, and it just disappeared behind the trees as it flew off. It would have gone over from where I lived. It would have gone over a big shopping centre called the Concourse. Uh, it would have flown over... That's in Bob Morris. It would have then got over Ricketts Point 
and then it would have got the plane would have gone in a straight line across the bay to Indented Head, um, and it would have passed over um, the southern area of Geelong and, and gone past West Geelong, then Anglesey, and then right down along the Great Ocean Road. Because Fred was heading straight down to Cape Otway because that's where the lighthouse is, lighthouse is, and that's where you turn south to go down to King Island because that's where he was going. Yeah, it, it is such a such a interesting encounter, and the the thing that I find just so haunting about it is the the fact that we've got a a version of a recording of what happened because um, in your book it it's kind of revealed that the original recording is almost an, an impossible thing to to get our hands on in our current day and age um but kind of small snippets of it have uh like kind of made it out to the to the public and they've kind of been re uh i guess re-recorded in in their own ways to kind of fill in those blanks but in your book you do have a, a copy of the of the cha- the transcript of what was said that day um do you happen to have that on you by any chance uh, yeah yep yep so we can um, go through what was said, hope when uh, Fred had this encounter. Yeah, absolutely, because this is a rather famous UFO case over here in Australia, and it really did, it got a fair bit of uh, international attention, but some of our listeners may not be overly aware of the of the context of of what happened, but if you mm. can go through the, I guess, that transcript, okay. that would provide <clears throat> a lot of information. Yeah, it does, really, yeah. Um, so what happened was, Fred, after I lost sight of the plane, Fred continued down to, to Cape Otway, and then he was, uh, that's where they all go, because when you're flying along next to the ocean, you, you tend to stay over the land. In case you need to come down in an emergency, you can land somewhere on solid ground. So, you, you know, you follow the coast, but then... Eventually, if you're going to cross over Bass Strait and go down to Tasmania, you do have to cross the, the Bass Strait. You have to cross the ocean. Um, and Fred had done this a couple of times before, but um, this was his first. Um, his return flight would have been a night flight, but it was not night time yet. Now, the trouble is a lot of the skeptics say, oh, it was, um, it was, he was flying at night time, and it's very easy to be disorientated when you're flying in the dark. It wasn't dark. Um not yet. A return flight might have been, but it wasn't dark yet. So anyway, he's going down to, he's got to Cape Otway and he has radioed, he has said um, Melbourne, this is DSJ, I'm at Cape Otway and continuing to King Island. And that was acknowledged, um, Steve Roby was the air traffic advisor in air services and he heard that and he said, yeah, um, yeah DSJ Melbourne, um, you know, Roger that basically just said yeah DSJ you uh, were just acknowledged with, with the call sign Delta Sierra Juliet was the registration of the plane Delta Sierra Juliet so um, so Fred just then headed down from, from Cable Way for another about six minutes and in that time he's covered about a third of the distance from the mainland to King Island it's a fair way it's um it's about a half an hour flight directly south from Cape Otway. And, of course, there's a lot of other people flying around and communicating with their services at the same time. And they're having um, normal communications. Um, 
funny thing is whenever Fred is speaking on his radio from now on when he communicates, uh, there's a kind of a background interference coming through whenever Fred talks. But not when he was at Cape Otway, but once he's reporting after he's flown six minutes across the ocean. And his first thing is, he goes, uh, Melbourne, this is Delta Sierra Juliet. Is there any known traffic below 5,000? And he goes, who's uh, Delta Sierra Juliet, no known traffic. And then he says, um, Delta Sierra Juliet, I have, seems to be a large aircraft below 5,000. And then the reply is, um, Delta Sierra Juliet, what type of aircraft is it? He says, Delta Sierra Juliet, I cannot affirm it is for bright. It seems to me like landing lights. And he gets the reply, Delta Sierra, Delta Sierra Juliet. And then a minute or so later, Fred says, uh, oh, Melbourne, this is Delta Sierra Juliet. The aircraft has just passed over me at least a thousand feet above. And so he gets the reply, Delta Sierra Juliet, Roger, and it, it is a large aircraft, confirm. The answer he gets is, uh, unknown due to the speed it's travelling. Is there any Air Force activity in the vicinity? Any Air Force, any aircraft, any Air Force aircraft in the vicinity? So this is going so quickly, he's thinking it must be a jet or something, you know? Um, and the answer is, uh, Delta Sierra Juliet, no known aircraft in the vicinity. And he says, oh, Melbourne is approaching now from due east towards me. And he gets to reply to Delta Sierra Juliet, so that's acknowledged. Then it says on the transcript, it says, open mic for two seconds. So what Fred's done is he's held the mic and he's gone to say something and no words have come out. But during that, that two seconds, you hear this static sort of noise coming over the radio. And it, to me, it sounds like if I had an industrial sewing machine running in my bedroom and I was on the phone and I had this machine running, you'd pick it up on the phone, you'd hear this clickety 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 noise. That's the sort of sound. It's an unusual sound, the background sound. Uh, and he says, Dr. Sierra Juliet, uh, it seems to me that he's playing some sort of game. He's flying over me two, three times at a time at speeds I could not identify. And the answer he gets is, Dr. Sierra Juliet, Roger, what is your actual level? He says, my level is four and a half thousand, four five zero zero. Delta Sierra Juliet, and confirm you cannot identify the aircraft. Affirmative. And he says, yeah, affirmative. Delta Sierra Juliet, Roger, stand by. Now, there's a lot of information there. It's flying over me at two, three times at a time. At speeds I cannot identify. I don't know anything that can do that. That's kind of strange. That's like, um, a, you know, like a, a helicopter blade would go over you at very many times per second. But I don't know anything else that could do that. Yeah, the the movement that's described it's it's just so unnatural and and just so impossible by known aircraft at that time, let alone today. That's right. And also, you can't identify what it is. He's saying it's going so fast. This is it's got such speed that he can't identify it. He just says it's like landing lights and it's bright and it's big and it's fast. And there is this interference coming over the radio, which confirms there's something unusual going on. Um, 
Then he says, Melbourne, Delta, Sierra, Juliet. It's not an aircraft, it is. And then he doesn't say anything. This is his noise coming through the radio. So he's saying, it's not an aircraft, it's... And then he can't think of the words to describe actually what it is, because um, he, 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 he does, he, he's having trouble describing it. Now, the cover of the book is this photograph taken by somebody who was down at Cape Otway and took this photo of the sunset and captured this unusual object. And that's why I've used that on the cover of the book, because that was taken at the time, on the day that Fred disappeared... And this was taken only about 20 minutes before Fred flew past into this area. But that's known as the Roy Manifold photo. It's on the cover of the book. Um, it's a very odd shape, and you would have trouble describing it. It's um, typically like a child's top, kind of curved at the bottom and, and sloping sides going up and like fl- almost flat on top. But in this photo, it's got kind of... um an odd shape sticking out of the top as well and like a jet of steam or moisture or something coming out of it and it's got sort of blue sparkles around it in the air, blue sparkly dots in the sky which were not in the photo before or after and Roy was taking photographs every 30 seconds timing it off his watch second hand, he wanted 30 second intervals of the setting sun who's shooting off the last six shots on his camera. And he wasn't looking through the camera when he was taking them. He'd set the lens on infinity, set the camera at the setting sun, and then he was just timing his watch, looking at his watch, and every 30 seconds just clicking the release button on the sh- on the camera. It had a motor driver. It was an Olympus camera, OM, uh, Olympus OM-1 or OM-2 with a motor drive. So he was just clicking off the, sh- the shots. To use up the rest of his film, and this this photo, I, I'll include a copy of it on our show notes episodes because it's it truly is fascinating. Like the the thing is, you work in a photo lab, you kind of know what what can be manipulated and what can't. And the thing is, this was done in a time when photo manipulation was extremely difficult. Like the to, to produce something like this, he would have to do something like a double exposure or something like that on the on the camera. And to, to do that on film and not actually ruin the photo completely back then, extremely difficult to do. And the but the thing is, it's not just this this craft. You do see how there's almost like this interference or something going on around it. There's there's so much to this image that it, it feels like it would have been impossible to to fake in that day and time. Well, one of the, um, you know, when you look at a, at, a, at a court case or a criminal case, you have change of evidence, you know, when you have things like bullet cartridges and things that could get handled or mishandled, you have a thing called chain of evidence, right? Now, um, Dr. Richard Haynes of NASA says that in when it comes to photography and UFOs, you've got to know about the, the role of film and the, the the order the photos were taken in, do they match uh, what was going on in the person's life at the time? Like, you put the film in your camera, you take some photos of the dog or something at home, you go off on your holiday, you take a few shots of things on the way, you get to the place you're staying, you take photos of where you're staying, then he's taken these sunset photos, and then he's... Do they all follow a logical sequence when you look at all the negatives on that film? 
they did. That's one of the uh, little rules that that Haynes uh, sort of talked about when he gave a talk about this case. Um, he mentioned other cases where people had UFOs that they'd photographed. Um, it was no photos in between of making the model of the UFO and then test shots where they threw it in the air and it went the wrong way. You know, people would, um, if you can see all the negatives, you can get you know, an idea of whether or not this is made up or not. Now, what happened in this case with um, with uh, Roy Manifold, who took the photo, uh, he didn't notice it when he was taking it because he was looking at his watch and he wasn't even looking through the camera. And it wasn't until a month later that they just went and got their film developed. When they got the photos back, they found this image in the photos. They thought, no, hang on. Those people that developed our film, they've marked it up. They've got this big splodge in my in my sunset photo. And he, he, he said to his wife, where did you get this developed? And she said, oh, just down at the local place, which was... Um, I think, I think there was a number of different uh, photo labs around at those times. Uh, and there was one called Pacific Photos, which is sort of in all the shopping centres. And, and and Roy had this idea that Pacific had somehow just damaged the negative or something. So he went to them and said, look, look, I've got this weird thing in my, in my photo. What is it? And they said, we don't know what it is. And he said, well, what's happened? You know, when you've developed the film, you know, you've this doesn't, you know, what's going on? This is it's not our fault. There's nothing wrong with the film, and there's there's nothing wrong with our processing. We we haven't we don't damage people's negatives when we do uh, when we make prints, you know. So he he had to accept what they said, but he still wasn't satisfied. And the film he was using was Kodak film, and uh, he lived um, in Templestowe. And Kodak's not that far away from him in, in Coburg. So what he's done is he's, he's gone to the Kodak Laboratory, which is the Australian headquarters of Kodak Australia. He's gone there, taken the film, showed them the negatives and said, look at this, and showed them the photos and said, what is this? What's going on here, guys? So their lab technicians looked at it under a microscope and they said, no, there's nothing wrong with the film. There's no developing error, there's no emulsion error, that's something that you've captured, you've captured something that was in the air, we don't know what it is either, but that's on this photo, if you look at it, you can see the grain of the film that, that is the reaction of the grain of the film to whatever was out there it's not a, no damage to the emulsion layers or anything, that was confirmed by Kodak uh, and strangely, when he was there, they said could you leave that negative with us so we could do further analysis on it? And Roy said, I don't know, I'll take it back then. So I'll take it with me now. <laughs> so I'm glad he did, otherwise it would have been lost forever. Uh, yeah, possibly. absolutely. So uh, this is a month after there's been all the stuff in the papers about Fred disappearing because the plane went missing in October and it wasn't until November, like the end, uh, four weeks later, that, that they got their film developed. So... That just shows you that it wasn't a hoax. Uh, he was in a hurry to get his photos developed or anything. He just took the photos of the setting sun. He didn't know he'd captured probably one of the greatest UFO photos ever taken related directly to 
probably the greatest aviation mystery that's ever happened in Australia. He had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, and it's this is the the thing I find so fascinating about this whole type of mystery is, is the fact that these there's all these funny little connections that you almost have at a personal level, and it kind of blows my mind. Well, look, how about we just quickly run through the rest of this uh, transcript so everybody gets to hear the rest of it, and then we'll go on to that all that other stuff. Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do sounds it. Sounds good. All right. Okay. So he said, look, it's not an aircraft, it is, and then he had no words to describe, because if you look at that photo, yeah, it's hard to describe. Um, so then um, he's asked by Steve Roby in Air, Air Services, uh, Delta Sierra Juliet, Melbourne, can you describe the uh, aircraft? And so Fred says, uh, Delta Sierra Juliet, as it's flying past, it's a long shape, and then the mic is open for three seconds. He's having another look, and then he says, I cannot identify more than that. It gets such speed. And then the mic's open for another three seconds, and then he says, uh, it's before me right now, Melbourne. And the answer is, Delta Sierra Juliet, Roger, how large would the uh, object be? And he says, oh, Delta Sierra Juliet, Melbourne, it seems like it's chasing me. What I'm doing now is orbiting, and the thing is just orbiting on top of me also. It's got a green light. It's sort of metallic-like. It's all shiny on the outside. Now, chasing me, that didn't get into the transcript when that got into the papers. They changed the, that to, it seems like it's stationary. But he said, it seems like it's chasing me. Oh, really? Yeah, because that sounded, probably sounded too sinister to put that in the in the papers. Anyway, you got the reply, Delta Sierra Juliet. Then I, the mic's open for another five seconds with more of this noise. Then he goes, Delta Sierra Juliet, it's just vanished. And they acknowledge that, Delta Sierra Juliet. And then he calls with a question. He says, Melbourne, would you know what kind of aircraft I've got? Is there certain military aircraft? So he's thinking it. There must be something that could move really. It's odd that he had just know about, but it's very fast. It must be a military thing. Um, so Steve says to him, Delta Sierra Juliet, confirm the aircraft just vanished. He says, say again. He says, Delta Sierra Juliet, is the aircraft still with you? He says, Delta Sierra Juliet, it's um, nor... And there's... Nor uh, south, approaching from the southwest. So, because he's been going around in a big circle, he's actually no longer going to King Island. He's started to go around in a circle so he can keep an eye out and look for where this thing is. It's gone over him at a thousand feet above. It's disappeared. It's come back. Uh, and it's going very quickly. He doesn't know what it is. And so, when he's trying to work out which direction it's coming from, he's got to get his own bearings first because he's been going around in circles for a few minutes. He says, oh, it's now approaching from the southwest. And they, that gets his nose, Delta Sierra Juliet. Then Fred says, uh, Delta Sierra Juliet, the engine is rough idling. I've got it set at 2324 and the thing is coughing. Now, 2324, that's 23. Um, these uh, aviation experts tell us that when you're running a cruise altitude, uh, cruise speed, and you're just cruising along, uh, 23 refers to 23 uh, inches uh, uh, inch pounds of pressure, manifold, n negative um, 
manifold pressure in, in the carb in the carburation system of the plane. So, twenty three is the the, uh, the proper um, running of the engine. It's, it's sucking. It's got twenty three pounds of pressure, so that's dragging the fuel through the system. Um, and twenty four meaning is twenty four hundred RPM. That's just a normal sort of you know when you're going around the freeway in your yeah, car, you might be going twenty four hundred speed. Yeah, so he's cruising gently and everything, and everything's fine, but his engine's coughing at that kind of rev range, which is very unusual. And so Steve says, okay, well, Roger, what are your intentions? Now, I think he misinterpreted the question at that point, because what Steve is thinking, this plane's now about halfway to King Island, over Bath Strait, about halfway there, what would be, what's the best thing for you to do? To get back to the mainland and try to land or get to the island and try to land? Because you've got in, he's saying the engine's coughing. And, and Fred just says, oh, look, my intentions are uh, to go to King Island. Ah, uh, Melbourne, then a strange aircraft is hovering on top of me again. And then he's for a few seconds. He says, it is hovering and it's not an aircraft. So Steph says, Delta Sierra Julia. And then he says, Delta Sierra Julia, Melbourne... And as he's talking, all of a sudden he's cut off with this strange metallic sound, which has been, uh, that came out on um, about 2013 on the uh, Unexplained Files. Uh, they interviewed Dr. Richard Haynes in America, and he played the tape recording of that metallic sound, the actual sound from the tape, which is what I've been describing as sort of a funny noise that was coming through the radio. But now it was a bit louder and it had a, like a clicking, rhythmic clicking sound to it. And uh, nobody's been able to, uh, people can only guess what that might be, that clicking sound. Uh, but, and Steve tried to call him a few times and uh, ne- never got a reply after that. So there was never any response. Now, that's the end of that. <clears throat> there was no more. It would have been so terrifying for this poor young man to be alone and kind of just go through this absolutely unexplainable experience and not really have any support from anywhere to kind of validate what he's seen. And now a quick word from our sponsor. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Also, are you wanting more content? Why not become a Believe Plus member? You'll get access to exclusive podcasts and episodes that aren't available to the public. Not only that, you'll also get our regular feed without any ads. Head to believepod.com forward slash plus to sign up today for just $5 a month. Yeah, well, I was talking to Steve about it and he said, look, it's it's, it's kind of strange because uh, you're talking to somebody over a two-way radio, but all you have is a microphone and a speaker. You know, you can, you're in communication, but you can't really do anything. It's a very helpless situation for both of you to be in. You know, they're they're at the other end saying, I'm seeing this thing, I don't know what it is. Do you are there any aircraft like this? And well, he couldn't see what, what Fred was seeing. 
Fred was giving a description, but but it was hard to describe it. And um, and then he disappeared, and uh, they never recovered the plane, um, or Fred, or or anything. And um, many many years after this had happened, um, a, a very unusual new chapter in the story kind of came forward. Um, uh, Bill Chalker is a UFO researcher, very well known. UFO researcher in New South Wales. You, do you know, well, Bill's been a UFO researcher for you know, 30, 40 years or more, and everybody he's well known internationally as Australia's leading UFO researcher. Uh, he's had that held that mantle for a very long time. Now, he was co- he was doing a lot of UFO investigations of in the nineteen nineties. Uh, they had a lot of sightings around there, and uh, he decided there were so many. He grabbed his mate Rob, and the two of them went um, to Coonabarabran to investigate. There was a lot of houses to visit, a lot of people to visit who had reported these UFO sightings. And while they were going through this process, many of them said, oh, you've got to go and talk to Laurie. You must go and talk to Laurie in town. Um, now, this guy, Laurie, this guy called Laurie Ryder, who ran um, the local hardware store. Uh, and what he did, he was very interested in UFO reports and there was a lot going on in the area at the time and he used to ask his customers to write down uh, or to, to tell him tell him about their experiences and he would write down uh, in a journal all, all these UFO reports that came in and so that was very interesting but he said, look, you know, he had hundreds of them over the years he said, yeah, but he said the most interesting one of the lot was a farmer that had come in who had moved to Coonabarabran from South Australia. He said, this farmer came in. Now, I've, I've actually got um, his story in the book. Uh, there's a chapter on him called Laurie, and it's about his story. Now, if I just quickly get to the right page, I can tell you um, what Laurie reported. And it's on the tape, and we've got a copy of this tape recording that Bill made when he was interviewing Laurie, Laurie Ryder. It's a very interesting little story. Um, and it, it was the day after Fred had gone missing, but it was in Adelaide the next morning. Now, have you ever heard about this? I have, I have. And it is an absolute head spin because um, I'm not going to take away the the glory of it. But when I did read this in, in your book, I was absolutely blown away because it is it is just this absolute obscure piece of the puzzle. Well, here's I'll, I'll sort of um, play the part of Laurie. But this is what Laurie said on the tape when he was being interviewed by Bill Chalkett. He said, There was a mixed bag, he said, but the most interesting one of the lot is this farmer came into the shop. He pulled up outside on one of these little egg bikes, you know, like sewing machines. I've had a bit of a a grin to myself. I've had about 15 or 16 motorbikes, and I've still got about four. Um, I'd kick myself forever for selling me Vincent, you know, but anyway, it's done now. Anyway, um, I thought, you know, riding one of those little sewing machines... (laughs) Yeah, he got off and scratched himself and he got his clothes off and that and he came into the shop to get something, I think a gas cylinder filled or something. Anyhow, I mentioned his bike and what did he do, you know, and I always ask people these things. Uh, down near Adelaide, he bails Lucerne. He had a property down there in South Australia 
and at the time there were military military manoeuvres on down that way somewhere and he was bailing hay and he said the bearing in the bailer started to scream and make a noise and he'd been having some trouble with it so he thought oh no not this again so he stopped they put the bailer out of gear and dismounted from the tractor and turned around and the bailer had stopped but the noise was still going and he said I was trying to come to grips with this for a minute he said and then I became aware of a shadow and he looked up and he said he was under a big saucer he called it and he said going from the length of the baler and the tractor would have been about 90 feet in diameter so that's about 30 metres right he said and was kind of um, as he's flown an aircraft and he gets his crops done he knows when an aircraft is about to stall and he thought strip this thing's going to drop on me so he ran out from the side to the side of the paddock out from underneath it and looking up he said looking under it it kind of came in and went up it was dark he couldn't see anything but the most remarkable part was you know on merry-go-rounds at shows they have the horses they have um stacked wide there they've got these little wooden lats have you noticed them they're nailed onto it so you don't slip over hmm out about an inch or half an inch by an inch and there's a gap and then there's another one. They're all around the edge. He said, well, it was like that underneath but there were two rows of them. Now, if you could blink, you could see one row which was rotating very fast but the other one, the other one wasn't and it was, that this were counter-rotating or it was rotating in the opposite direction but very slow. You could see it quite plainly and he said, as it moved slowly along, it kind of came up and there was a piece sticking out of the top like a dome. They had around, uh, around the bottom of the dome appeared to be a black seal of some kind, he, just what he took it to be, like a weather seal or something. And he said the dome had like a church door in it with an arched top. But there were no windows that he could see, no handle on the door or anything. And he said on what he took to be the rear of it, there were slight protrusions that he would call radars and two big round holes and he said there was shivering heat coming out of one and the other one and little spurts of flame coming out of it and he, he gained the impression that one engine wasn't working you know because one disc wasn't spinning and then as he cleared it he said the most remarkable thing of all there was a Cessna airplane stuck to the side of it unbelievable isn't it aer- the whole airplane and he said uh, the airplane the tops of the wings were flat against the side of it and the tail was kind of hanging down, a bit clear of the edge. He said, and um, he said there were no chains or ropes or anything like that visible. And I think he said there was some oil running down the side of the Cessna. And he thought this might have been ingested. If there was some air t- intake underneath or something, that heat and flame coming out would suggest air burning, wouldn't it? Something like that anyway. Um, anyhow, he scratched the registration number on the tractor with a nail. He said, next time I come up, I'll give you the number. And he did. And he'd written it. I've got it written down in the shop in a book. And the interesting thing is it was the day following when that plane went missing between Victoria and Tasmania. You know, when that plane rang up and he he said there were lights around him. And now Bill Chalker says, oh, Frederick Valentich, yeah. And Laurie says, yeah. Bill says, so that would put it back about October 1978. I said, yeah, yeah, it was the day following. Anyhow, he said this thing moved off in the direction of where the military manoeuvres were. He said it was kind of went over a ridge and he said that was last he saw of it with this high-pitched sound and in the book on page 93 i've i've done a, a like a simulated model to sort of make it look like what it might have looked like for this farmer 
who saw this disc with his aeroplane stuck to the side of it. I've tried to sort of do a mock-up photo so people can see what it might have looked like. So, what a story. It's amazing. What a story indeed. And when when I read that, like, my my mouth, my jaw actually dropped because <laughs> it is just such yeah. a surreal piece of this mystery that this plane goes missing over the Bass Strait, which is, you know, it's it's not like it's super far away from Adelaide, but stuck to the side of this this UFO. It's mind-blowing. The thing was, I, I think because of that funny noise and everything, I think that they've actually collided. They've somehow come together over the ocean mid-air. Well, that's why nothing was ever found in the sea. Um, and this witness has seen it the next morning, stuck to the side of this flying object. Now, there's also, as you would have read in the book, there was this uh, TV, um, this fellow who um, was a, a TV camera operator for one of our TV channels, I think it was Channel 7, but he lived in Adelaide, but he remembers when he was a little kid, about six or seven years old, he and his brother woke up one morning, it just happened to be 1978, October 78, and they heard this funny noise and they looked out and there was this big circular object hovering outside the house, but it was making a funny noise and that's what woke them up. Now, it may have still had the Cessna stuck to it, I don't know, but it could be the same thing that Laurie described seeing, which would have possibly been later that same day. I don't know. We, we can't get to like an exact date or anything, but it was October 78. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of a bit of corroborating evidence, but it's, it's, it's not, you know, you can't really directly link it, but it's very interesting. But that's, yeah. Oh, the other thing was too, because Laurie said, oh, it was near where the military thing was going on. Well, we, we've checked that out. We've got uh, contacts that are actually involved in the Australian Army, and they looked up that date, and there was a military exercise going on at Murray Bridge in, in South Australia. That was going to be my next question, because I wonder what if there was any type of military connection to to the ongoings of what was happening here. The, the witness said that it flew off towards where there was a, a, an Army exercise going on, that weekend, it flew over that area, and uh, there is an army base down there. I've driven past it. I've seen it. Um, so apparently, it flew over there. I wonder if there's any military guys who were doing that exercise who saw this strange object fly over. Yeah, it'd be yeah, really fascinating. Be nice. I I would absolutely love to to see if anyone uh, who listens to this podcast was around that area and and saw something that that happened because you'd be you'd be surprised here, George, that the the people that listen to this podcast it's so uh it's so varied and uh they they come from all kind of uh ways of life so uh you you never know we may have a a secret a secret contact out there i would absolutely be over the moon if we were able to kind of scratch a little bit more off the uh for the mystery of this one but you know this this has been one of australia's greatest aviation and ufo mysteries for 40 years and uh, the thing that I, I find so fascinating is that this tape is just not available to the public. This this is the last known um, spoken word from from this guy who's trying to work out what's going on around him, and then he's just he's never been seen. I mean, he's officially uh, missing, presumed dead. You know, so it's it's that's why they wouldn't release it, and you can understand why the family wouldn't want it released as well. You know. 
but parts of it have come out. Now, um, Dr. Haynes came out here, gave a talk in Melbourne. I went to the talk and I recorded his talk, and he didn't play the tape because the family were in attendance that night. So, no, but he went off to Sydney and the family didn't follow him up there. And so he played the tape up there in Sydney. Uh, and that is on a website. Um, if you can find it, you can actually hear Haynes giving the talk and running the Valentich tape and, and, and discussing it. And you hear Fred voice. You hear Fred saying, oh, it's, it's in front of me right now. And you hear all of that on the tape. Uh, on on the Haynes talk, um, it's it's on Audio Mac, I think that's the website Audio Mac. Um, I can send you a link to it. So, so actually, you if you a- could, that would be great because I can include it in the show notes for this episode. Yeah, so yeah, people can hear the actual um, recording being discussed by Dr. Haynes. Right, but I, I do have to ask you, George, and it, it might be like a bit of a, a speculative question. But before I kind of let you go tonight, what do you think happened that day? What do I think happened? Well, I think that he's encountered, just like Steve Roby does, um, he's encountered something very unusual um, that he couldn't even describe it. And I think they've actually collided midair. That's why no wreckage was found. Um, but what's happened beyond that, um, you know, other than what the, the farm said there was something attached to the aircraft um, I, I don't know what the final answer is I, I'd love to find the farmer talk to the farmer who saw it um, he may still have an old tractor with the number scratched on the paint you know I'd love to see that if that if that exists but uh, look I don't know mate. Look, I think there was an accidental aerial collision between this large object and the plate um, I, I think that the farmer's description of this plane stuck to it with oil oil running down the side but and that is quite an alarming um, thing but it, just, it explains why nothing was found nothing washed up in the sea you know if you drop a plane into the ocean parts do wash up now there, there was an air intake cowling which turned up on a beach but it was over 350 kilometres from where Fred's last known position was. And it was against the current. So this non-buoyant piece of aluminium air intake would have had to flow against the sea current for five years and then end up right near the airport runway on Flinders Island to be from the same plane. It yeah. couldn't possibly be Don't, from... doesn't make sense, does it? No, but that's why... I. I did a fair bit about that in the book too because that was in the official um, records that were kept for this case and the, the skeptics jump on that and say oh well there you go it's been solved a bit of wreckage washed up so he must have got into the sea uh, but what about the guy who saw it the next day and it was flying around attached to this large object <laughs> yes how, how do you how do you work out what happened I don't I don't know if we'll ever know um, my main reason for writing the book um, nothing on radar the Flintish mystery, my main reason for writing that was to defend Fred because a lot of, um, you see a lot of stuff online where people are attacking him and saying, oh look, he was a bad pilot, I mean yeah, he had a few misdemeanours, he was only a young guy, he was 20 years old, he was learning to fly, he made a few mistakes, he got reprimanded for flying into cloud at one stage, he accidentally flew into restricted airspace over Sydney, he'd never been there before 
You know, he was learning. Um, people make mistakes. That's how you learn. You make mistakes. Um, he didn't pass all of his exams on the first go. Well, not everybody does. You reset the exam and you and, and you, you study and you reset the exam and when you pass, then you go on to the next level. And that was his reason for going down to Cape Otway was to, uh, to King Island was to get a few more hours up because all pilots do that. They've got to get their experience up. Un- unfortunately, Fred had a very unusual experience. And um, so, yeah, I'm, a, I'm very pleased with how the book's turned out. And um, I published it on Amazon because um, it's almost impossible to get publishers to look at your work. Yes, um, it's... <laughs> self-publishing. Self-publishing cuts through all of that. It's revolutionary because they print on demand. Somebody, a couple of months ago, somebody ordered a copy in Italy. So Amazon printed one book in Italy and gave it and sent it to them. Wow, that's incredible. They print on demand. There's no warehouse full of books that somebody had to pay for and then you've got to try to sell them all. There you go. How fascinating. It's revolutionary. So if somebody goes to Amazon, looks for the book and orders it, they'll print it. In a day or two, and have, they'll have it in their hands in a couple of days, freshly printed. <laughs> wow, that's, it's that blows my mind. It's that's incredible. It is, it is fantastic. Um, maybe we should do an audible version too. People have asked me, please do an audible one. Um, well, that's a big project. That'll take me a couple, uh, that's going to be a year to do an audible because an audible recording could go for 10 hours, you know, even a short book. Take a look. But I'm not against the idea. I think it's a good idea. I've done a Kindle version, so if people don't want to carry a book around or have a book on a bookshelf, you can just read it on your phone. You can get the Kindle version. Uh, that's also on Amazon. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is this is one that I'm, I'm definitely going to add into my library in, in a physical sense. I'm I'm usually a, a digital book reader. I have hundreds on my iPad, uh, but ones like this, uh, I think they will they'll hold a lot of weight in the future and. Uh, I don't think my iPad's going to last forever, but I know a book will. So I'm very interested in getting a, a physical copy of that. I might have to ship it to you, get you to sign it for me or something there, George. Oh, yeah, I'll do that. No worries. <laughs> Look, happy to do that. I've um, thought about this every day. Yeah, I think about it every day because since it happened, I saw the plane on his way to his final strange encounter. And uh, yeah, so it took me 40 years of thinking about it before I started writing. And then, uh, four to five years to to finish the book so and i think you've done an outstanding job with it george i it it was an absolute captivating read for me it was extremely uh eye-opening and how many personal connections and the the damn plane being stuck to the side of this this craft was the the most mind-blowing thing i've read in a in a long time so i i highly recommend anyone uh, who who listens to this podcast you know head over there uh head over to amazon i'll put links in the show notes for anyone who wants to to check it out it's it's not an overly long book it's about 164 pages from memory so it's a it's a really good one to sink your teeth into over a weekend and uh You'll you'll learn some really great history about one of Australia's most intriguing uh, aviation incidents. Yeah, well, it was good fun about writing it. It took a while, but it was good fun. I was doing other things as well, of course. I'm working full time and uh, I'm doing other stuff as well. But that's other stuff. <laughs> but yeah, that's part of me. Yeah. <laughs> 
But George, if uh, anyone wants to get in contact with you, is there a, a good way for them to, to reach out for you if they potentially have any additional information relating to this case or anything like that? Oh, yeah. Well, that would be fantastic. I, I, um, I can give you my email address because people could email me. I can, I, they can send me an email. Uh, that, that is probably the best way. Um, I'm on Facebook, so they can find me on Facebook. It's just my name, George Simpson. What we'll do there, George, is uh, we won't get you to put it out right on the podcast because uh, if, if people do want to contact you, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes and they yep. can... Uh, reach yeah, out to you that way but fun. i tell you what george it's been a real treat yeah. chatting to you tonight it's been super eye-opening and I, I personally just want to thank you for you know writing about one of the, the the most intriguing ufo cases in australia's history you know it's a pretty good one i'm i'm pretty pleased with it yep it's a pretty good case it's a pretty unique case and uh, look the family still have no closure uh, Frederick's grandmother is still alive. She's in her mid-90s. Um, she still doesn't know what happened to her grandson. His mother is still alive. Uh, his younger brother and two sisters are still alive. His father died, unfortunately, some years ago. But, um, I knew him quite well because he used to come to UFO meetings looking for answers, and he never got any answers, sadly. Um, he never found the answer he was looking for. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Believe Paranormal and UFO podcast. If you have had an encounter and you would like to share it, please get in touch with me. My email address is believepod at gmail.com. Finally, don't forget to follow us on all our social media outlets and be sure to join our Discord server to talk to other listeners of the show. You'll find all these links in our show notes. Thank you. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.